We turn to God's Word to Matthew chapter 25 at this time, Matthew 25. This evening we plan to continue our Advent series, Tracing the Coming Glory, but this morning we are in Lord's Day 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism, considering the phrase of the Apostles' Creed concerning Christ coming again to judge the living and the dead. So we are reading in Matthew 25, as the Lord Jesus in his ministry, in fact, at the very end of his ministry here, this is the last teaching of Jesus found in the gospel according to Matthew. And uh, the Holy Spirit wants this one impressed upon the church. Christ's last word, as it were, before he goes to the cross. Matthew 25, at verse 31 to the end of the chapter, as Jesus teaches us about his coming Return and Judgment Day, he calls himself the Son of Man in the opening verse here. Matthew 25, verse 31, as we hear God's word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, Lord, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Turn from the scriptures to the confession. If you would take out the Forms and Prayers book in front of you, the smaller Forms and Prayers book, and turn to page 221. Page 221, question and answer 52. This is the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a 16th century document, but it's written as a summary of God's Word to be a teaching tool on the confession of the church. And so, It summarizes what the Bible teaches, and here it's explaining 
this uh, phrase of the Apostles' Creed. It asks, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead? How does it comfort you? The answer is that in all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and has removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. So the church believes and confesses. Let's bow and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we come to your word. We pray that our great prophet, Lord Jesus, would stand among his people, that he who spoke those words recorded in Matthew would speak now by his word and spirit into our hearts and lives that we might all the more confidently await the very same Lord Jesus, our judge, and his coming. God, minister to our hearts, we pray, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if I asked you this morning about memorable days in your lives or, or a day that, that set the trajectory of your life, a day that changed everything, then we'd all come up with many days probably first come up with our, our birthday. Nothing's probably more obviously significant for our future than the day we're born. And if we're married, we should, I hope we would, choose our wedding day. That certainly determines so much going forward, right? Who we married. Uh, if we have children, then we point to their birthday or the day of their adoption. Maybe we think about days of graduation from school or the day we got a certain job. If we were converted as an adult and it was rather dramatic, then we might point to a day when we turned to the Lord. The Lord Jesus took hold of us. We have many different days. We all have different days. But in terms of a day that determines everything, we all have one day in common. The great day. The day of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. On that day when the Lord Jesus descends from heaven with his mighty angels... The days of human decision-making will be over, and Christ will render a verdict. Christ will speak, and he will determine eternal destinies, as we see in Matthew chapter 25. Some will be sent into a place of eternal destruction, some sent into the very joy and the glory of heaven. Is it to terrify believers that Christ reveals this? What's, what's to be our reaction to this reality that Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead? Is this to, to terrify the souls of God's people? No, the catechism has it right. The biblical emphasis for the church is one of tremendous comfort. This is to be your joy and your gladness that with uplifted eyes you're looking for your Savior to come for you. And to put an end to the sorrows and the struggles and the persecutions and to bring you into the complete satisfaction of God's presence forever. It's like a bride awaiting her wedding day with eager anticipation. So the bride of the Lord Jesus saying, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's look at this this morning. Let's consider first of all the reality of Judgment Day. And then secondly, the revealing that takes place on Judgment Day and finally, the rest, the rest that's given to us on Judgment Day. The reality, the revealing, and the rest. Well, last Sunday night we were looking at the truth that Christ ascended into heaven. 
that the same Jesus who died for our sins, who arose the dead, was 40 days later lifted up into heaven and seated on the throne. And so Christ is king and he does reign right now. We are not waiting for Christ to return from heaven and to establish his kingdom on earth and to begin to reign in Jerusalem. No, Christ reigns now. He is presently king. But he's ruling all things towards a specific goal. As we saw in Psalm 110 last week, that he, he sits on the throne till the Father puts all his enemies beneath him. And so the reign of the Lord Jesus has a terminus. It has a, a destiny. It has a goal to which Christ rules all things. And that's important. And because it means that things don't just go on and on like this forever. And history is not some some sequence, some meaningless cycle that just repeats and repeats and repeats. But the Christian view of history is that it's a timeline, it's moving forward, it's racing towards a conclusion, the return of the Lord Jesus under new heavens and a new earth. And so the Catechism rightly says, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead? Comfort you in all distress and persecution with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge. So that's the Christian posture upon earth, this confident waiting for Jesus Christ to come, looking for, anticipating, longing, praying. The Bible tells us that believers are not to live upon the earth as those who are drunk or asleep or distracted or idling away their time. They are to to be, as it were, standing on their tiptoes, waiting and watching because our time is short. Our suffering has an end. Our sorrows have an end. The day of our glorification is coming. Christ will return. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What a day that will be. You see the, 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 the reversal here. The first coming of Jesus is a coming in weakness, Right? The first coming, helpless babe lying in a manger. The first coming is, 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 is one of sorrow and humiliation. But the return of Jesus is in glory and power. Jesus himself says when, in our text that we read here, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, there he will sit on the throne of his glory. So the Catechism reminds us that the very same Jesus, the same Jesus who came in weakness and humiliation, will come in glory. The same Jesus who was hated upon the earth, who was despised and rejected by men, the Jesus who was mocked, who was slapped, who was spit upon, who was nailed to a cross, who was pierced with a spear, the same Jesus will come in awesome glory that will, that, will, that will cause unbelievers to cry out for the mountains to fall on them and shield them from the glory of God. The same Jesus who is condemned by earthly rulers will now come in judgment upon wicked rulers. Revelation 1 verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Be spectacular. His first coming is one of obscurity and darkness, right? 
I mean, there were the angels in the sky, but who saw it? Just the shepherds. But when he comes, there'll be the angelic host of heaven. The army of heaven will come with Jesus. And every eye will see it. It will be glorious. It will be loud. It will be trumpet blasts, great shouts. The Son of Man will come in his glory, Jesus says. We're tracing the coming glory in our, our Christmas series of sermons. But the greatest glory comes at the end, doesn't it? When Jesus Christ returns. End of history. Our world is always searching for the glorious and the spectacular, right? We, we, we crave, human nature naturally craves something glorious. But sinful hearts settle far too cheaply. They don't see the glory that alone can satisfy the glory of God in Christ Jesus. But that day is coming, and that's a reality. That's a reality. So we think about Judgment Day, we should ask a few questions. Number one, who will be judge on Judgment Day? Well, the answer is the Son of Man. That's Christ. As a reward for his perfect work, Jesus Christ will be the judge on Judgment Day. Number two, who will be judged on Judgment Day? Jesus said, verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him. Picture the scene. It'll be a, the largest mass gathering that's ever been seen, right? We've seen some big gatherings. Football stadiums filled, overflowing, or a huge group of people gathered on the Washington, D.C. mall. But this will be everyone who's ever lived, all gathered before the throne of the Lord Jesus. Male and female, young and old, Jew and Gentile, unbelievers and believers too will stand for judgment. Yes, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says, for we must, we must all appear, Apostle, the Apostle Paul is there writing to Christians, and he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. So Christ is judge. Who will be judged? Everyone will be judged. Us too. And thirdly, when will this judgment take place? It will take place when Jesus returns. At his return, the dead are raised. Judgment day comes. We don't believe there's a, a four different judgments, one before the tribulation and one after the tribulation and one after the millennium and so forth. No, it's one glorious event in the Bible. Christ Jesus comes, the dead are raised, judgment day has arrived. But fourthly, we could ask the question, how should this affect our lives right now? And the answer is we should live a life oriented towards that day, and that day should affect all of our decisions in this day, right? The Apostle Paul, again in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Or in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we read that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
God's grace has taught us this, to deny worldly lusts and to live a godly life in the present age because we're looking for the coming of our Savior. Our lives are to be focused by the reality before us. Satan's work is to distract us, right? Satan's work is to, is to present as if this is all there is. What you see with your eyes, live in terms of the present. Our culture is clearly, is clearly given to living for the present, right? What does the enormous national debt mean except that we are a people who are living only for the present? What does the mass credit card debt that so many carry often mean? Maybe not always, but often means it's a, it's a desire to have glory in the present, what do the, the, the sexual ethics, which are dead-end streets, what do they say except have pleasure in the moment? What is abortion and the wiping out of the future population? What does it all say but that people are living for the present? And the church is to have our eye on the future, a future-oriented life, living a godly life in view of Christ's coming. His coming is a reality. Secondly, this morning, there's going to be a revealing that takes place at Christ's coming, a revealing. You could ask the question this morning, why do we need a judgment day if believers who have died are already in heaven? And if unbelievers who died are already in a place of torment, it's already decided, what do we need judgment day for? In fact, you could back it up and say it's already decided for all of us upon the earth. Jesus said that if you, if you believe on him, then, then, then you have eternal life. If you don't believe, then God's judgment is already upon you. Or you could back it up even further to, to before the foundation of the world. God chose his people whom he would save and whom he would leave in their sin. So if it's already all decided, what do we need judgment day for? And the answer is judgment day is the day of unveiling Judgment Day is the day of revealing, and that's to be a comfort to us, because right now things are so clouded. In Luke chapter 12, in the context of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, Jesus told his disciples that there's coming a day when all the masks will be removed. He said, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be made known. So it's a warning about hypocrisy. The mask is going to be pulled off. Don't be a hypocrite. But it's also a comfort. If you're bothered by hypocrisy, don't worry. There's coming a day when the mask will be pulled off. We are bothered, aren't we, by things being covered up and hidden. We're bothered when congressional, congressional investigations never seem to arrive at the truth. There's so many layers of deception. Evidence disappears. People won't testify. Can't get to the truth. We grow weary of that. We grow weary of deception, of hiddenness, of secrecy, of darkness, of whispering. We grow weary of a culture that tries to blur all the lines. All distinctions now are being wiped out. There's there's no distinction between God and man. There's no distinction between male and female. There's no distinction between proper marriage and improper marriage. There's, there's no distinction between right and wrong. It's all just being blurred. Sometimes in the blurring, it's the Christian trying to live for Christ who's now ridiculed or hated as the prejudiced one, the bigot, the racist. Things are upside down. 
And Jesus says, don't worry. There's coming a day when I will unveil the truth about who everyone is. Most of all, we grieve presently because the glory of our Lord Jesus is hidden and his righteousness is blasphemed. People say awful things about our God. People dare to allege if there really is a God, then he's wicked because he lets the suffering go on. People say horrible things about Christ. He's misrepresented and slandered. Judgment day is the day of unveiling, revelation. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. You see that right now? All the blurring. But when Jesus returns, he says, no, I don't play that game. I make distinctions. I cut sharply. I divide. And I will separate. I will separate. Judgment day isn't necessary to determine a person's future. It's necessary to declare a person's future. It's the day of revelation and the day of vindication. We saw recently in Colossians 3 that our life presently is hidden with God in Christ. Our life is hidden. Our our glory is not seen. You are the sons and daughters of God and the world doesn't recognize you as such. But there's coming a day. Right now, Christ is blasphemed and hated. People think he's a man long ago dead. But there's coming a day. Right now, God is hated or ignored. But there's, there's coming a day. The Lord Jesus will appear and he will magnify the grace of God in salvation. He will magnify the justice of God in condemnation. And so, judgment day is not just like today's day in court. Today in our courtroom, they're supposed to uncover the truth right evidence is presented and the truth and the facts are decided but that's not what judgment day is for god knows everything perfectly he doesn't need any evidence doesn't need any attorneys arguing before him but on the day he's going to go public and he's going to pull back the curtain and he's going to show the world what everybody is so that gives us hope as we walk through a the muck and mire of a culture that blurs all distinctions and denies truth and calls wickedness good and goodness wicked, we know there's coming a day we'll be set right. There's going to be a separation. And the separation among peoples, Jesus makes clear, is going to be according to what has been done. The sheep are set at his right hand to inherit his blessing. The goats at his left hand to inherit the cursing. And it's all done according to to what man has done. Jesus says to to the sheep that I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was in prison and you visited me. And they're surprised. They say, Lord, when did we see you in that condition? I don't remember ever ministering to you. And he says, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, to my family, you did it to me. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, when you think again that this is Christ's last teaching here, really, in the Gospel of Matthew, that Christ emphasizes this so much that on Judgment Day, you'll be judged according to what you did to my family. That's what Jesus is saying. How did you treat my family? 
has a lot to say, doesn't it, about how we deal with the church today and the, the modern American feeling that you can have Jesus apart from his church, that you can have your relationship to Christ and disregard his church. And Christ is telling us on Judgment Day, everything has to do with how you dealt with my church, my people. The least of these, my brothers. That doesn't mean any human being, though we're called to do good to all. This is talking about Christ's brothers and sisters, and he defines those in the Bible as those who do the will of his, those who do the will of his Father. One commentator writes, what is in view here is particularly how people have treated those who belong to Christ's family. It is precisely this matter that marks out Christians as distinct from the world. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, John 13, 35. The goat's just the opposite, right? You didn't give me food or water or visit me. When, Lord, when did we not show you mercy? We never even saw you. Well, you saw my people. You said mean things about them. You put them in prison. You hated them. Remember when Saul was on the road to Damascus with arrest warrants in hand to arrest Christians. And Christ, the glorified Christ, arrested Paul. And he said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Neglect and rejection and mistreatment of the servants of Jesus brings people unimaginable punishment. Now, the sheep and the goats and Christ's words here are surprised, but maybe we're surprised this morning. I thought we're saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone, and not by our works. Isn't that what we preach and that we believe? That we're not saved by our works, that Christianity is the one religion where you don't climb your way to heaven by doing good. Because we confess our best works are defiled with sin. None of our works can raise us up to God. Our best deeds deserve hell. And isn't the great Protestant Reformation slogan that we're saved by grace alone in Christ alone by faith alone and not by our works and that's absolutely true so how are we to put all this together well the answer is rather simple we are not saved by our works but we are judged according to our works we are not saved by our works but we're judged by our works You see, it's not that we do enough good to get to heaven, but it's the life we live reveals whether or not we are united to Jesus Christ, whether we are his people. Our works show whether we have true faith. One way the Reformers used to like to say it is that we're we're saved by faith alone, but the the faith by which we're saved is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, But the faith by which we're saved is never alone. In other words, faith always brings with it works. Because if you have faith, you have a new heart. And a new heart loves God. A new heart loves God's people. A new heart serves the Lord with gladness. You're a new creature in Christ. And so our lives lives show forth our salvation. Our lives vindicate our faith. Remember James says, if you have no works, 
then your faith is phony. If you have no works, it's a phony faith. And the last day will be a day of revealing then. Hypocrites will be exposed. But Christ's people will be vindicated. Remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. On the day of God's visitation, your works will vindicate your faith. And Christ will be able to say, yes, my people were not perfect, but sincerely from the heart, they loved me, they served me, they cared for my family. They did the works of faith. Now, maybe we're still a bit nervous as we think about Judgment Day. If it's all going to be unveiled, and there's nothing hidden that will not be exposed, I'm not sure I want to be there. That everything I've done will be brought into the open. And every word I've spoken will be recalled. And every thought that I've entertained in my mind will be laid bare. Well, here's the glorious good news. As it's all laid bare for the believer, it will be revealed as covered in the blood of Jesus. The unveiling on that day is not to bring eternal shame to the Christian. That now I'm here in heaven, but i got to go through heaven for the next 10 million years, covering my face in shame. That's not it. But everything will be revealed among Christ's people as the sins of which God's people have repented, the sins they've struggled against, and the sins that have been atoned for in the blood of Jesus, that they may stand in the righteousness of their Savior. That will be the great unveiling, that we belong to Christ. Christ is ours and we are his. And he has purchased for us a place before the face of God. And so we don't need to fear Judgment Day. In fact, we confess this morning that Judgment Day, so far as our sins are concerned, has already come. It came at the cross of Jesus. That was Judgment Day for you and me. When when our guilt was laid upon Christ and God's covenant curse came crashing down upon Jesus and God struck his son for our sakes. And therefore, the future judgment day is no open question. I was talking to an attorney once. So one of our church members was going through court proceedings. And I was discussing with him the morality of taking a plea deal and he was talking about all these things and then I was talking to him about the possibilities of a man being vindicated in court and he explained the the jury selection and where we were geographically and culturally and he said it's about a 50-50 chance whether he'll be vindicated or not if he doesn't take the plea deal. But you see, for the believer, it's not like that. You're not awaiting to hear the news that the jury is back and the verdict is in. You have already heard the verdict. The verdict has already been announced. 
You hear it every Sunday in the assurance of pardon. You hear it every Sunday in the preaching of the gospel. The verdict is already announced to you. Your sins are forgiven. You are justified. You stand righteous before God. You are accepted in His sight through Christ Jesus. The verdict is already back and in your hand. And you've already experienced the outcome. The blessings of Christ. The love of your Father. His daily care for your lives. The comfort of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship of His people. These are the riches that flow to you from the cross of Jesus. Judgment Day will be the day of revealing and vindicating. But it's not the day of any news you didn't already know. You believing on Christ are Christ's people. And your sins are forgiven. Your hearts have been changed. And God is your Father. And so we say boldly in the Heidelberg Catechism, in all my distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Aren't you nervous on the phone when somebody wants to hand you off after you've spent an hour with them and they've helped you and now they're going to hand you off to someone else and you're like, whoa, what if the line gets connected, disconnected? What if, what if they, they don't understand the situation? What if, but you see, when it comes to Judgment Day, it's the very same person who died for you that's coming on Judgment Day. The one who knows you by name, who died for your sins, who's coming to render the judgment. Nothing's going to get mixed up. Christ is not going to fail to recognize you. You're looking for the Savior you know, the one you pray to every day. He's coming. He's coming. And so Judgment Day is not for us a terror, but it's our comfort and it's our hope. And that brings us to the last point then, that on Judgment Day, the Lord brings us rest. Rest. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart. From me you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. If our world suggests that there's no real distinctions in life, everything's blurry, Christ insists that things are going to be utterly divided. Some receiving the inheritance of life with God and some receiving eternal curse, torment. The Catechism says that we're looking with uplifted heads for that day when Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation. It's perhaps difficult to appreciate what that means if we haven't suffered for Christ's sake, right? The Catechism was written in days of fierce persecution. People saw loved ones imprisoned or burned at the stake for the Christian faith. They, they recognized enemies. We long for Christ's coming when we identify with the persecuted church, when we count them our brothers and sisters, when we pray for them. Then our hearts are burdened and we want relief. Now Christ has commanded us in this life to love our enemies, right? And so we are to pray for them. For their good, and their greatest good is salvation. We are to pray for their salvation. 
as long as the Lord grants them breath. The thief on the cross was not a very good prospect of salvation, was he? But now he's in heaven. We don't know who the elect are. We don't know whom God will save. We pray for our enemies that God will save them. But we recognize at the same time that there are some who are eternal enemies of Christ Jesus, Satan and his demons, and some humans will stand opposed to Christ and hate him even on the day he comes. And there is no perfect rest with God in a new heavens and a new earth if there are still enemies that assault the name of Jesus and assault his people. And so the church longs for that day of rest. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the apostle says, it is a righteous thing. It's a a right thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. That's a right thing. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. It's a righteous thing for God to deal with enemies, to trouble those who've troubled you. It's a righteous thing and a loving thing for God to give you rest from your enemies. As you struggle against sin in this life, the enemy within, as you struggle against Satan, the enemy without, look forward to the day when enemies will be removed. There'll be no more assault upon your life or your faith. But the contrast of what awaits the righteous, we confess in question and answer 52, that Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. Who can imagine? No eye has seen. No ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love him. Heaven. To be with God. To see at last the one who made us and the one who has rescued us. And the one who loves us and the one whom we love. Romans 8 says that that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us at the coming of Jesus. On that day, we will know that no sacrifice was too much, no suffering was too much for this. We will enjoy a a satisfaction, a delight in God's presence that is beyond all we can imagine. At last, our hearts will be utterly filled. Psalm 16, there are pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. Our wedding day will not be disappointment. Bride of Christ praying, come Lord Jesus, come. The groom in heaven awaiting the moment the Father sends him to go and take his bride. What endless delights, what everlasting joy, what satisfying glory. And that's to where our hope, our eyes are to look. With uplifted heads, come Jesus. Every heart wants glory, but where will you seek your glory? In the things of the earth or in the Son of God, your Savior? Judgment day for the believer is to be a great day of comfort. If we don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we're living in opposition to him, then of course it's a terrifying thing. 
But even then, even then, isn't it marvelous that Christ reveals the coming day of judgment so that we can repent and be restored to God through Christ and be confident that we will enter everlasting rest? What a gracious Savior at the end of his ministry on earth saying the great day is coming. Saints of the Lord, watch and wait. With uplifted heads, look, pray, and hope. Live lives of purity. Look for my coming. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this revelation of our Lord Jesus. It is life transforming. We thank you for showing us the end of history so we know how to live right now. We pray, Lord, for humble hearts that we would daily willingly confess our sins and live in Christ alone by faith in his perfect work. We thank you for such a Savior. We pray, Lord, for any who do not know our Savior. We pray even for the enemies of the cross of Christ, that you would conquer them as you did the Apostle Paul, as you did the thief on the cross, and that you, Lord, would bring them to the Savior, that they might know what it is to be in paradise with him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.